Okay, so, obviously, ready for the redemption, but until then, I want to go back to Parsha Mishpatim, coming in on the scene with a gangsta lean, if you know what I mean. Anyway, um, I was realizing, standing at the Bema on Shabbat, that we were reading from the Besora passage for Mishpatim, and it was not... Matit Yahu chapter 17. So because of that, and because Hashem has allowed me this time, I want to just take a moment to go over what we did read from Matit Yahu chapter 26, verses 20 through 30. So without further ado, I want to read through this, and then I want to just kind of hit some of these high points here. So um, let me get something real quick on my little device here. Make sure I get this search going. I'm going to, this is basically looking up some, um, information about verse 30. So you know what? We don't have to go in order. Cause why? Cause we're on the, the, uh, C class. So Mishpa team C class, we just do what we want. Well, not really everything we want. We just mostly do what we want, including going backwards in our reading. So why don't we start out with Matthew Yahoo 26, verse 30, shall we? Let's go with what is uh, the topic at hand. And I want you to think about what is commonly known as the Noahide laws. Because the Noahide laws are said to be seven general laws that subdivide into categories of more and more things, which is interesting when you think about that Noahide concept, because if we are looking at seven laws that are really copious amounts of laws that are uh, in the categories of the seven, then why do we not understand that the Ten Commandments are 10 general categories of more commandments that will that will total 613. So really the 613 are categorized into 10 commandments. So that's kind of interesting that the the quote unquote Noahide law teaching and uh, the thing that exists apparently in the world today is like, well, it's seven, but there's really more than seven. And it's just kind of like, okay, so if we're looking at seven, then why not look at 10? Because, you know, is it that we should follow the Noahides or is it should we follow the 10? Because most people who have a Bible really will be disqualified from following the seven because they know about the 10 and because what you know, you're accountable to it. So really, what are we doing? You know, it's like 
the Noahide thing is taught as a as an entry point, uh, as a uh, theological curriculum practice, if you will, kind of like if a person was to convert and to begin their walk in Judaism, then they really should start with the Noahide laws because that's kind of like your basics and kind of helps people, you know, if they're stuck in the flesh, you know, how to keep that going. But if a person is, um, you know, obviously being transformed and delivered, which is really what happens when you convert and become a Jew. Why are we telling them to stick with the Noahide laws? Oh, wait, because the people who are told to be Noahides are not getting converted. So you're keeping people stuck in the flesh. Now it makes sense because the 613 are spiritual laws, which come from what's called the Torah, which is spiritual. And in the letter to the Romans, Shaul says, the Torah is spiritual and I am not. I, I was actually sold as a slave to sin, which is fleshly and carnality. So, yeah. So what are we really doing if we're telling people to follow Noahide laws? We're telling them, don't worry about the power of God and all that stuff. Just uh, live like a human being and don't strive for any heavenly purpose. Don't strive for any eternal kingdom. Don't really focus on living this life for the next life. Don't really focus on the fact that there's a resurrection and there's a judgment coming and all that kind of stuff. Just just live for the now. Just be like Esau. That's kind of sad when you really think about it. But what the seven actually represent, which is little known, it's because, you know, it's understood that there are 620 commandments. And uh, I could go get that book, but let me stick to this first. <laughs> I'm going to go get the numbers book uh, with the help of Hashem. But there are really 620 because they say that there are seven mitzvot that go with the 613. And those seven are not the Noahide laws. Why? Because the Noahide laws are a part of the 613. So again, if you're telling people, don't worry about the 613, which will really be the Ten Commandments, focus on the seven, where you're telling them to follow a portion of the Ten Commandments, which is setting people up for failure because you're telling them to live below the standard that they're called to because of what they're walking in. So literally treating something spiritual as something that's fleshly and immediate gratification. Don't focus about the bigger picture. Just focus on this and you'll be fine. Don't worry about the rest of it. It's like, well, how come some of these commandments are in? How come all of these commandments actually are in the Torah? You know, like just pick one of the Noahide commandments and you can find it in the Torah. But yet there are seven additional mitzvot that are apparently connected to the 613 to give us a total of 620 commandments. But what are they? And I'm just going to go ahead and say the reason why I'm saying this is Matthew 26, verse 30, is because the Hallel that it says in this verse, after singing the Hallel, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Um, That's one of the seven. That's not one of the 613. One of the seven what? One of the seven rabbinic mitzvot. Did you know there were seven rabbinic mitzvot? 
And the number one of those seven is singing the Hallel. What is the Hallel? The Hallel is also sometimes translated as spiritual hymn. So yes, when Shaul says we're to uh, comfort one another by singing spiritual songs and spiritual hymns and things like that, he's saying comfort one another by doing one of the seven rabbinic commandments called the Hallel. Now, Hallel should not be confused with Hillel or Halal. Those are completely different terms. But let's just stick with Hallel because that's where we're at. Hallel is from Tehillim Psalms 113 through 118. And it says, which praise God on certain special occasions. What are those special occasions? Sukkot, Shemini Atzeret. But wait, isn't Shemini Atzeret part of Sukkot? Yes, but it isn't. Just like Yosef is a patriarch, but he's not. Just like Mashiach is one with Hashem, but he's not the totality of Hashem. But yet the totality of Hashem exists in him. But I know that's a, a big jump, so we're just going to leave that there for now. Obviously, we could talk about that all day and still wouldn't be able to get anywhere other than blue screens and resets and more blue screens. But anyway, Shemini Zered, Simchat Torah, like that's a part of Sukkot, but it's not. Going on to say Hanukkah, that's another time we recite the Hallel. Pesach is another time we recite it, and Shavuot. And this is to show our gratitude to God for the miracles that we are commemorating at those times. Each of these festivals celebrates the miracles that God has performed for the Jewish nation. One of the ways expressing our gratitude is by reciting the Hallel. So wait, if we look at what we're talking about here in, the, in this Basora passage, we're talking about they're fulfilling the commandment of expressing gratitude to Hashem for miracles that he's performed. But wait, this is where Yeshua is saying someone is going to betray me. This is where Yeshua is saying, you know, like things are not about to be good. And yet we're supposed to express our gratitude. I was just in a conversation with a distinguished gentleman and he was saying, you know, we say God is good and God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. But yet we look at starving people over in Africa, like pictures of them. Like, is, is God really good all the time? And it's kind of like, OK, so why don't we take that and put that next to this picture where Yeshua is like, we're going to be super joyous right now. But um like literally, verse 22, being very sorrowful, they began each other to say to him, I'm not the one, am I master? And he replied, the one who dipped his hand in the bowl with me, he's the one who will betray me. Yeshua is leading people who are sorrowful to be in a state of gratitude because that's how you sing the Hallel. You sing it in gratitude on the night of Pesach. At the conclusion of the Seder, it's a very happy time. Obviously, it's a very tired time because we're going way into the wee hours of the night. But you should know you should have your Seder done before midnight. Which is kind of cool when you look at uh, this 
this uh, occurrence here that it's pretty late and they're going out into the garden. So anyway, um, but yeah, just a rule of thumb, try to finish your uh, Seder before midnight. Because why? Because it was at midnight that the slaying of the firstborn happened on the original Pesach. So we don't really want to uh, encroach into that section of the time of judgment uh, that happened uh, in antiquity. So we want to get all of our stuff done. Be, be ready. So back to my point. The, the Talmudim are sorrowful. Yehuda is like, wait, what? He caught on to me. I can't believe it. And Yeshua was like, but I knew about this even before I chose you to follow me. So I know you're on blast right now, but I need you to know that this was supposed to happen. But woe to who the per woe to the person whom these things have to occur. I know you're going to betray me, but at the same time, I wish it wouldn't happen through you, you know, but it's got to happen. But I wish it wouldn't happen through you. However, we got to sing the Hallel. So everybody, let's be joyous. So it's just kind of like, wait, wait, we're expressing gratitude at a time of sorrow uh, for Yehuda. He's at a time of uh, embarrassment. Um. And notice Yeshua didn't literally say Yehuda, you know, because if you think about everybody dipping, you know, there's a way you could do the Seder to where, you know, not it couldn't have been just him and Yehuda dipping, you know, it could have been like, OK, well, the one who's dipping his hand in the bowl with me, it's like, OK, who's dipping their hand in the bowl? Could be the whole group, you know, or it could be just. You know, because it says in verse 20, which is the beginning of our section, now it was in the now it was when it was evening, Yeshua was reclining at the table. As they were eating, he said, Amen, I tell you, one of you will betray me. So, I mean, it's just kind of like, all right. Uh, and then in verse 24, at the end of it, he says, It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. It's like, wow. And verse 25, and Yehuda, the one betraying him, the thing is, is that, you know, this is an account that Matityahu wrote. So obviously at the time this was written, we knew Yehuda was the betrayer. But at that time, Yehuda, I mean, it wasn't known by, it wasn't common knowledge that Yehuda was going to betray Yeshua, but Yeshua knew. So it says, and Yehuda, the one betraying him, replied, I'm not the one, am I, Rabbi? Yeshua said to him, you've said it yourself. So, yeah, so there's kind of the moment of like being put on blast without being put on blast. It's kind of like, well, yeah, you're the one that's going to betray me if, if you've said it. I mean, are you going to betray me? I mean, don't answer that. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like when Rabbi asks us, you know, during service, he's like, Okay, so how many of you have done this? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> it's just like, wow. But anyway, so I mean, it's kind of a, it's a beautiful juxtaposition when you really think about God being good all the time and, you know, how to be joyous even in the midst of embarrassment or in the midst of sorrow, you know, because the Talmudim know 
Mashiach is about to be killed. It's like, but he can't die. He's the word of God made flesh. It's like, yeah, but do you remember when the sapphire tablets got shattered? Because there's no way they should have shattered. Those are tablets from Shemaim. How is something of earth going to break something and destroy something that's from Shemaim? I mean, really? Because you realize Mashiach is from Shemaim and something from earth actually brought destruction to it. It's just like, yeah, well. But what is what does Messiah say? He says, no man takes my life, but I lay it down willingly. So could this be what the tablet said? Israel will not shatter me, but I will shatter myself. Because, you know, that's the only way the sapphire tablets would have perished. And again, considering the sheer weight of the tablets, the one of the shattered pieces would literally calculate to be the weight of a human body. So, I mean, because we're talking over a half tons uh, as far as the weight goes, because 40 say, ah, when you translate that or convert that into pounds, you're looking at over a half ton. And so what's a piece of a half ton? You know, I mean, that's a very heavy person, obviously, but I mean, not all pieces have to be equal. But anyway, just things to think about. How to be joyous in the midst of all that. Apparently it is possible. And the Hallel is one of the ways to do that. And on this occasion in our Basora passage here, Mashiach is leading us out to the Mount of Olives to go to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is where all of the horribleness is going to ensue. And it's just kind of like, okay, so we got to sing the Hallel and then we're going to go out. So the Hallel is supposed to be a joyous, supposed to be expressing gratitude. And it says, by extension, there is an ancient custom to recite a truncated Hallel, Hallel, Sika, on Rosh Hodesh and the final six days of Pesach. So the thing is, you recite Hallel on Pesach, like the first day, the 15th, but from the 16th through the rest of Pesach, you don't. But yet there is a custom to recite a truncated version of it during those six days that you technically don't. And you don't recite the Hallel on Rosh Hodesh, but there is a custom to recite it on the Rosh Hodesh. And as I'm bringing this up, I just want you to take a halakhic note that there is a way to do things, but then that's not the only way things can be done. So just when you come across halakha, when people tell you there's a certain way that we're supposed to uh, proceed in doing a certain manner, you know, like, I don't know, uh, off the top of my head, um, as crazy as this is, toilet paper on Shabbat. Because some people are like, oh, no ripping, no tearing on Shabbat. It's like, so we're going to have pre-torn toilet paper. And it's like, well, there's actually so many different ways that can go about being done, you know. And, you know, tearing toilet paper on Shabbat is not really a thing of what the actual mitzvah of no ripping and tearing on Shabbat is, you know. So just to kind of point that out. That, you know, you don't say the Hillel on the other six days of Pesach, but yet 
there's an ancient custom to recite a truncated version. So yeah, you're not really reciting the Hillel, but you're reciting the Hillel. And by the way, for that extent on uh, tearing and ripping on Shabbat, we do tear apart and rip the challah, but yet some people have a custom to cut the knife or use a knife to cut the challah. And, but we're not supposed to cut on Shabbat either. And we're not supposed to create on Shabbat, but yet we can make sandwiches and salads and chop up the vegetables and chop the sandwich and stuff like that. So anyway, for what that's worth, I just wanted to throw that out there as far as a, take this moment to expand your thinking, expand your logic. Okay. Cause, uh, you know, I, I bring this up because so many times in the past, people who have been close to me, myself included, have been pulled away and, and fell away from the faith, fell off the path of, of, of Torah, of observance because of things like this that tripped us up and got us into a, a corner. And it's just kind of like, no, it's got to be done this way. And this is how Jews do it. And this is the only way it can be done. If anybody else is doing it differently, then they're wrong. And I don't have time to tolerate that. And it's like, okay, well, enjoy no longer being observant and enjoy now being a goy. Because that's usually what happens. It's kind of the, the whole thing of, uh, well, if there is so much back and forth, then what are we really supposed to do with all this? I literally had a book open that was talking about a person who's like, there is so much distinctions between the rabbis. How am I really supposed to uh, be observant? So it was in the green book, the uh, teachings of the Talmud. All right. Okay. Thank you, Hashem. Hooking me up with the photographic knowledge. Get you some. Yeah, it was uh, Shemot chapter 20, verse 1. Y'all, something awesome just happened. I just literally, you know how Shomer Man has the little heads up display in his helmet? Like that just literally happened to me right now. It's just like, I want to talk about this one point. Where was that? And the screen just swiped and it was like, yeah, you were reading Shemot 20, verse 1 from the Humash with the teachings of the Talmud. So, yeah, if you go there, you can bring this point up. Because, again, uh, I'm talking about the halakha and the back and forth and all this kind of stuff. And, uh, yeah, so this totally is some commentary we should take note of so that Chaspe Shalom were pulled off track. This is from Chagiga 3B. Chagiga 3B. If anybody tries to gouge out your spiritual eyes. Remember this. A person might wonder how he can ever study Torah since there are so many disagreements. Our Pasuk says that Hashem spoke all these statements. Say all these statements. Okay, hopefully that was enough time to say that whole phrase. This means that all of the different opinions in the Gemara, the Gemara, were included in what Hashem taught at Sinai. A pasuk in Kohelet, a verse in Kohelet, explains, the words of the wise are like prods coming from one shepherd. 
This means that all the sages' rulings come from the same Torah of Hashem as taught by Moshe. Get you some. That's on page 219, and I am putting a tab on that. And I'm going to take a picture of that. That is ridiculous insanity. Wow. Okay. Anyway. Thought we should know that. Back to the seven rabbinic mitzvot. Uh, Saying blessings. The various blessings that we say before one has the pleasure of eating, drinking, smelling spices. Blessings recited before doing a mitzvah. Each category of food or smell in each mitzvah has its own prescribed blessing. There's blessing said from switching from mediocre to great wine. Uh, when returning to a place where a miracle has itself occurred to oneself or ancestors. There's literally a bracket for uh, returning to the place where the Yom Suf split. But anyway says when seeing a friend after an extended period of time when entering a cemetery. Wow, you can say a blessing for entering a cemetery. Are you serious? Anyway, when seeing a beautiful person, you can say a blessing. Okay, gentlemen, calm down. Let's let's not get cray cray. Some of us unmarried people. Um, I don't know why I said that like I'm included in a category. But anyway, I just want to point out Guys and girls alike do not just kind (laughs) of lose it when you see a beautiful person. You know, there's a blessing for it. But like none of the, oh, snap, she cute or oh, snap, he look good. Okay, none of that. Say your Braca and keep it moving. Anyway, uh, when seeing certain animals and all that, there are all the different blessings. So that comes from the rabbis. Why do we pray before we eat? That comes from the rabbis. So Mashiach Yeshua totally prayed before he ate because what happened before he distributed the two fish and the five loaves of bread? He lifted up the bread to Shemaim, set a bracha and broke it and started passing out food. Anyway, so now we know what blessing he said. It's called Hamotzilekamin Haaretz, who brings forth bread of the earth. Anyway, uh, washing your hands before eating, that's a rabbinic thing. Now, I just want to point out Mark chapter 7 for a second because it's a rabbinic mitzvah. And Mashiach was getting questioned, why are some of your Talmudim not being rabbinic? And this is interesting because Mashiach's response was, how come y'all are so rabbinic? That you're not even following the mitzvot. How come you're only keeping the seven and not the 613? Oh, what? Mashiach is like, why are you not keeping the seven? But the why are you keeping the seven and not the 613? Do you really know that God gave us 613? There's an extension, you know, through the, the rabbinic establishment. But you don't take those seven and throw away the 613, which is what the very people were asking Mashiach about his Talmudim. If you really get that, all of that drop right there, how can this passage be about Mashiach making foods clean? 
I'm sorry. That we're not focused on food right now. Or are we? Because remember, our food is to do the will of the one who sent us. Or wait, that was Mashiach's mission, but yet we're supposed to be conformed to his likeness. Romans 8.29. Because I just read it today. Anyway, so the commandments, the bread from heaven, every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Father, those are all the mitzvot. So if you really want to talk about making all foods clean, he's saying, well, the rabbinic commandments are also clean as well as the 613. But they're all, they've always been clean, so I don't even know why we're really talking about it. But yet, don't forsake the Torah for the, for the sake of doing the rabbinic stuff. Okay, if you're going to do the rabbinic stuff, make sure you're still on point with the Torah. Like, make sure you actually got the mitzvot. Okay, the honoring your mother and your father, not just I got to give Zadaka today, so I can't honor my mother and my father. It's like, okay, before you can give Zadaka, you need to be taking care of what your what your obligations are. Okay, which is so beautiful. The Rambat, who is the Musar with Batya, she brought this beautiful drop down about a month, maybe two months ago, because time goes so fast. But she was talking about how we love the whole idea of being people who are charitable, right? Like pat ourselves on the back because we gave Zadaka today. But yet, what if we have bills and debt that we need to pay off? We're spending all of our time giving Zadaka and not paying off our debt. That's not right. That was a Musar concept. So I just thought that was like so brilliant that she decided to bring that up from the Musar class. So, I mean, wow. <laughs> Don't forsake the 613 for the sake of the seven. So just look at that as, uh, you know. Look at that as a, a pattern. So yeah, I'm just kind of um, just kind of meditating on this right now. Just taking a Selah moment. Because I mean, this is we're supposed to be on Matthew 26, but I'm just you just have to take time to stop and just think about this. You know, like rabbinic commandments, they're they're legitimate. But if you're ever finding yourself trying to be so rabbinic that you forget about the Torah, you forget about the 613, you forget about loving your neighbor as you love yourself. Because you realize when you hate your neighbor, that's a reflection of how you feel about yourself. If you're bitter with somebody, you're bitter with yourself. If you're upset with somebody's level of observance, you're upset with your level of observance. That's what's going on. How are you okay with your level of observance? Bezrat Hashem, it's because you're a person who's truly giving it all you got. And you're just grateful. You're people of gratitude. You're people of of kindness and, and joy. 
and gladness. Anyway, I'm going to finish these last couple and we got to get back to our passage. Okay, so uh, the Eruv on Shabbat, uh, the mechanism that makes restrictions more permissive. You know, the the places where you're prohibited to carry the the whole, uh, the Eruv, the little section of the community, put the string up and all that. Uh, there's a lot to it, so I'm going to skip over all that information. You, you want to know more about an Eruv, E-R-U-V. It's called Eruv Tashlin. Uh, you have all sorts of stuff that goes with an Eruv. By the way, don't get upset if you're at a part of a synagogue that doesn't have an Eruv. Because that synagogue has to work directly with the city. And I don't know about you, but nobody can just walk directly into the city. A council and establishment there and be like, listen, we need this whole section of the town blocked off. People can't drive in this area and we need to shut it down. I'm just saying that's that's the stuff that goes with an Eruv. Okay, it's just kind of like, okay. And what about the people who will be living outside of the Eruv because they'll have to drive to get there? Or do you just want them to not come to shul? Anyway, something to think about. Number five, lighting the candles for Shabbat. It says, in honor of the special day, we light candles. The rabbis introduced this practice to ensure that Shabbat and festivals should be peaceful and calm without people tripping or stumbling in the dark. There was a beautiful drop that uh, my Kala brought down. She's uh, from the candle lighting book, and it was talking about the Kedusha that sets in in the household when the candles are lit, and that her household comes underneath the anointing of this Kedusha that's brought down from the candle lighting, and it, it does this beautiful spiritual superhero protecting thing to the family because she lit candles. But anyway, just so you know, Number six is reading the Megillah for Purim. And uh, it says the sages at the, of that time, at the request of Esther, instructed all Jews to celebrate joyous festival called Purim on the 14th or the 15th of the month of Adar, which is the anniversary of salvation. Mm, the anniversary of Yeshua. It goes on to say that there's four mitzvahs of Purim that are a part of that celebration. Is that coincidence? I think not, because what? There are four letters of Hashem's name. Uh, and the last one, but not the least, is Hanukkah. That's one of the seven rabbinic mitzvot. And where do we see Hanukkah? We see it in John chapter 10. What's happening during Hanukkah? says we celebrate the victory of a small Jewish army recapturing the Holy Temple and the miracle of the small jug of oil. So, yeah, that's that's cool. And what were the people doing in John chapter 10? They were asking Mashiach for a sign. Are you the Mashiach? Tell us plainly. We want to know. And it's just like, OK, let me talk to you for a second. So anyway, seven mitzvot. And there you have it. All right. So. The Hallel is recited. That's one of the seven rabbinic mitzvot. And we see it here in our Basor passage of Matityahu 26 and verses 20 through 30. Now, one of the final things I want to get into before we are done with this is I just want to point out that, um, you know, this meal that they're having is commonly called the Last Supper. 
But if you think about the Last Supper, it's a picture of uh, a big loaf of bread, this beautiful long table with a bunch of men who don't have their hair covered, and all sorts of various foods are on it. But what I want you to point, I want you to take note that this is during Pesach, and there would not be any loaf of bread on this table because you have to remove the hamets from your house. And actually, you're going to have what's called a matzah loaf, a matzah loaf, or, or matzah pieces, you know, and they're they're these wafers basically, and uh, they come in circles. If you have the shmura matzah, they have the square matzot, you know, and things like that. Because if you look at verse 26, it says, "Now while they were eating, Yeshua took matzah." Okay. Yeah. And it says literally bread at Pesach, which is unleavened. So the last supper picture, I mean, if we needed anything just to kind of point out, hey, we might want to take this picture down, put up a Pesach Seder or just put up a Seder plate on the wall. Because I think it's really interesting that some people hang up their Seder plate on the wall like a picture. And as I was looking at it, yes, I'm going on a tangent again. This whole drosh is a tangent, so... But anyway, um, and again, if you've listened to my Romans podcast, my Garrett to the Romans, I talked about the tangents and why that's important, because that's how oral Torah is written with tangents. But anyway, uh, when you look at the Pesach Seder plate hanging on the wall, it looks like a revolver, like a six shooter. And I was thinking about that because the Torah is called six things. This is brought down in uh, Tehillim. 19, where it talks about the Torah being the aspect of six, goes back to Parashah Yitro and the Vav that was added to his name to make his name Yitro, and the Vav being the man, Mashiach, and the Torah, and all that kind of stuff. And so the Seder plate literally is that Vav. So we're partaking of the flesh and the blood of Mashiach, who is the Vav, because the Vav is the two Mashiachs. The way you write the letter Vav is Vav, Aleph, Vav. So there are two vavs. Those two vavs are called the two Mashiachs. Moshe is the olive that's in the middle. So how do you unite the two Mashiachs? You unite them through Moshe, which is the giving of the Torah. So when you're studying the Torah, you're studying the two Mashiachs because the two Mashiachs are actually one, which is why the word vav is really one word, but it's expressed with two vavs and the letter olive, which the letter olive also has a letter Vav in it. Because the way you write an Aleph is you put a Yod on top, Yod on bottom, Vav in the middle. So really there are three Vavs and two Yods in the name of Vav, which would bring that to, uh, let's see, 18, 10, 28, 38. So yeah, so the Gematria of 38. And so I uh, don't have time to really get into that, but Vav could be 38 which is kind of interesting, but that's the Seder plate. So just know that when you're looking at your Seder plate, you're partaking of the six, which is the Torah, which is Mashiach. Two Mashiachs to be exact, which are really one. So yeah, so you got the matzah here, and then you got the cup where you give thanks. If you go through your Seder, there's a cup of uh, Thanksgiving that we say a bracha over. So that's important to note. And then um, Yeshua is tying that to the blood of the covenant, which we actually learn about in Parsha Mishpatim as well, where there's in Matthew 24, or Sika, in Shemot 24, 
where the sprinkling of the blood happens at the foot of the mountain on the tribes and half the blood is sprinkled on the tribe, half the blood is sprinkled on the altar. So uniting the people with Hashem is the blood of the covenant, which was also the crowns that were placed on our heads by the angels when we said Naseve Nishma, which also happened in Shemot chapter 24, as well as in previously in Shemot. So two times this happened. And then uh, then there's another one here in verse 29 of our Besor passage of Matthew 26, where Yeshua says, I will not drink the fruit of this vine from now until the day when I drink it anew with you in my father's kingdom. Just like Yosef, uh, from the time he was separated with his brothers until they were reunited, he abstained from wine and so did the brothers. So. The whole thing about not drinking this cup is because it's like we're going to be separated for a time. There can't really be any true joy. But I guarantee you when the great wedding feast happens, we all are going to drink and we're all going to be excited and all that good stuff. So that is to come. But anyway, it starts with the Seder. And so, uh, yeah, so the Seder here is what's going on. Uh, and then there's the betrayal aspect. And it's important to note that the amount that Yehuda sold Yeshua for with the silver pieces was the same price you pay for a female slave. So in a sense, uh, Yehuda was showing that he was selling the Shekinah, like betrayed by the Shekinah. And this is also tying back to the brothers selling Yosef because... It was 10 brothers who sold Yosef and the Shekinah of Hashem was entered into agreement for selling Yosef. So now the Shekinah is entered in agreement with selling Yeshua to hand him over. And so we see this, uh, this beautiful picture in this round about story and pattern. And the beautiful thing is, Mashiach being Yosef, whether we're talking about Yosef or talking about Yeshua, they both had to be sold because once they're sold, the people who take possession of them actually become the possession of Israel, which is why we're supposed to reach out to the nations because technically they're owned by us because we took possession of them when we handed Mashiach over and sold him. Just like the brothers took possession of Egypt when they sold Yosef into Egypt. So there's a whole lot there. But that means that when you take possession of something, it's upon you to bring that item that you have into of your possession. You have to bring that item into covenant. You know, when we buy dishes, we kosher them. We, we buy them. So we... As Israel, we're supposed to be sanctifying the nations. And because I'm already in Matthew, why don't we just hop over to 28 in verse 20. Yeshua says, well, let's go to 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, of all non-Jews. Go bring them in. How do you bring them in? Well, what do you do when you get your dishes? You immerse them. You tobble them. So I need you to do the same thing to the nations. Tavel them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Ruach HaKodesh, which is the names of Hashem that are inside the waters of the mikveh. So immerse them in the mikveh. 
Because the mikvah consists of three names, which just so happened to be the name of the Father, Son, and the Ruach HaKodesh. Because why? The Father, Son, and the Ruach HaKodesh, they're all one. Hashem Echad, as we say. And then it says, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you, and remember I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So Baruch Hashem, that through this whole passage of Matthew 26 through 30, or Matthew 26, 22 through 30, that we see this beautiful picture here of our... Uh, the beginning of our deliverance, we see some wonderful drops and insights of uh, the rabbinic mitzvot, bringing in the nations. And I guarantee you, when the fullness of the nations are brought in, we will see the resurrection. So do we want to be a part of having the privilege of seeing that? I say yes. Hopefully you do. And hopefully we're not ashamed about it because... We're not supposed to calculate the time of the final redemption. We're not supposed to be cuckoo like that. But what we are supposed to be doing is working that field and bringing in those divine sparks. And as we have our head down, hands to the plow, it'll be only a matter of time before we finally look up and we see, oh, there's the temple. There's the new Yerushalayim. Oh, look, I'm in my resurrected body. May that be soon and in our days. Until then, C-class. Class is now over, and let's get out there and handle our business. Baruch b'shem Adonai. Baruch Adonai. Eloheinu melech haolam. Asher natan lanu Torah temet. Vekaye olam natabet okeinu. Baruch Adonai. Noten ha Torah. Amen.